The reading is from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, it's good to see you. Um, we're continuing in our series that we started last week, um, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and uh, this week we are coming to Smyrna. Um, last week we looked at Ephesus. We call that the loveless church. Um, this week we get Smyrna, the faithful church. Um, in this, um, I mentioned before we were. Um, I was in Turkey uh, a few months ago, which is really the setting for these historical churches in Western, what is now Western-day modern Turkey, uh, referred to as kind of Asia um, or Asia Minor in in the Scripture. And um, I was there. Philip Moore, our European director, was there, um, and Tony Morita were there teaching. And Philip um, recounted this story of. Uh, he, he told this story of a, a, um, a Christian in Africa, a church planter in Africa, um, a Christian in Africa. I don't think he was a church planter. And he told this story, and there was some of the guys from the Australian network that were there and heard the story, and then went back to Australia, and they were having their uh, conference, and one of the speakers retold the story that Philip had told. And um, the story was... There was this Christian um, African guy. Uh, he was the first Christian um, in his village, and uh, he would have to walk many miles uh, to go to church. Uh, there wasn't a church in his village. Um, and because of his faith in Jesus, the rest of his village got very upset. Um, he wasn't worshiping the gods that they had worshiped anymore. He had kind of rejected them. And uh, as the story was told in Australia, they would burn his feet um, so he couldn't walk to church. And then his feet would heal up, and he would walk to church again. And then they would burn his feet, um, and he couldn't walk, and he'd have to wait till his feet to heal. And then his feet would heal, and, they, and then he would walk to church again. And eventually, they got tired of burning his feet before he got tired of walking to church. That's the story that was told, retold, in Australia. The problem was uh, he misheard Philip, who has a Northern Irish accent, um, misheard the story. They weren't burning his feet. They were burning his fields. <laughs> and so they would burn his fields and then he would replant them. And they, you know, uh, uh, he, he continued to go to church the whole time. They would burn his fields again. He would replant them. They'd burn his fields. And eventually they got tired of burning his fields before he got tired of, of going to church. Um, I think the feet one makes for a better story. Um, it's just not true. Um, but still, Imagine having your livelihood essentially burned to the ground, your way of living and providing for yourself. Um, and it, it's, it is, a, 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 the point of that story is true because there are many people in our uh, world today that suffer for their faith. Um, Open Doors and some of these other um, organizations that kind of monitor, monitor persecution um, have really said there's been more people persecuted for their faith since the beginning of the 20th century than all of the rest of the martyrs combined. Um, and we hear story after story um, in our world today, um, even in our country. Um, it's a different kind of suffering, no doubt, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but this is really the heart of this letter today. And, it, and the question for us is, are we prepared? Are we prepared to suffer? Are we prepared any kind of suffering to follow Jesus? Are we prepared to suffer for the gospel? Um, because it, the Bible makes it really clear, when you hold to the claims of the gospel, you will face opposition of some kind. 
Um, we finished the, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus ended his last beatitude pronouncing this blessing on all who are persecuted. Remember, he said, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, when you pursue a life of godliness, you will suffer. You will suffer for that. And it's not that we pursue suffering. It's not that we have some kind of martyrdom complex of any kind. We're just called to be faithful. We're called to be obedient to Jesus. And when we do that, when we pursue obedience to Jesus, Jesus said you have to be ready for opposition when we do that. And opposition can come in many forms, right? Um, it's, in some ways, it's right for us to compare our suffering to someone who's having their fields burned or people who are being beheaded um, for their faith, which still happens today, people who are being thrown in prison, um, which still happens today, people who are um, losing their businesses. There's lots of opposition that happens. Sometimes, it, uh, probably for us, that's not going to be physical opposition, but it might be verbal. It might be relational. It looks like it's becoming increasingly judicial. And here we have this theme to the letter to the Christians who are in Smyrna, Smyrna about suffering for the gospel's sake, to be faithful to Jesus. And it is relevant for us. If you live out your faith, there might be some jobs that you won't get. There might actually be jobs that you lose. We've seen that in, in, in just recent weeks. Rugby players being thrown off their team simply for confessing a Christian traditional sexual ethic, losing their job. Politicians voicing Christian belief and losing positions because of it. You may have experienced some of that as well. Church planters often find it difficult to rent space in various parts of the world. Teenagers know they'll get mocked for following Jesus. In certain countries, if you don't recognize the state religion, you'll be seen as an outsider, as strange at best, or at worst, a problem to be dealt with. Persecution isn't something that only happened in the past. It's happening now. It's happening today. It's happening within the network we belong to. Um, so just a few weeks ago, we have um, um, an initiative in Acts 29 called Church in Hard Places, and uh, the initiative is where we try to plant churches in, in hard places. It's a very catchy title. We're very, very good at marketing. Um, but uh, one of the church planters who's a part of that initiative in Asia um, was, was telling uh, the team that his church plant had been raided um, while they were gathering. All of the attenders were questioned um, by the government. Um, the pastor was jailed um, for a period of time um, while they were trying to question him and figure out what was going on, and they were assured that action would be taken. This is just a few weeks ago. Hebrews 13.3 says that we're to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body, which is what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, right? We are all one body. We are all members of one body. So when our brothers and sisters suffer, when our body suffers, Paul says, remember them as if it were you who were also suffering. One of the more striking things about suffering for the gospel is found in Philippians chapter 1. This is verse 29. It says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaging in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Did you hear the wording of that? It has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you. Not only to believe, which is also a gift, but to suffer. You get the privilege of suffering with Jesus. And this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to follow the same outline that, we, that we're going to follow for all of these letters. They follow a similar pattern. Um, and so the first kind of section that we're going to look at is this authoritative introduction in verse 8. The authoritative in, uh, introduction in verse 8. So it says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, um, we explained what these angels and all those things were. If you didn't catch all that, we're not going to unpack that every week. Go back and listen to last week's on the podcast. So to the church in Smyrna, he's writing the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So let's look at the context of Smyrna first. 
Um, I have a few pictures here. You get my holiday snaps. This wasn't a holiday. Someone actually said, I was, you got to do that on holiday. This is when we were over for the conference, so this wasn't really a holiday. Um, Smyrna is now modern-day Izmir. It's the only city of the seven that are actually still there, a modern-day city. So if you go to Izmir, that is now, that is what is Smyrna. So there's not much that's actually there to see. Most of it is underneath the modern-day city. So when you come, they have a few things that they've kind of um, pulled out, pillars and different things from colonnaded streets. Then you kind of go underground, um, subterranean, next picture. Um, and you can kind of see um, some of what would have been marketplaces and things like that. You can just kind of bounce through these pictures um, that are here. Um, so this is upper level, and then you can kind of go down underneath um, into what would have been there. There's a fountain. I don't know if you can read that, but on the fountain, it's actually etched in stone. It says Smyrna, um, so um, an ancient, ancient water source that's there. And this is kind of modern-day um, Izmir um, that's there. So not, not as much to see as in Ephesus and other places because there's an actual city that they would have to excavate underneath uh, to do that. Um, Smyrna, um, it was one of the most culturally sophisticated cities of the time. It was also one of the most prosperous cities of the time. It's located about 35 miles north of Ephesus and was really a great rival of Ephesus at the time. It was renowned for its civic pride. It's, um, uh, it called itself the first in Asia. It was established a thousand years before Christ. So this is a, a pretty old city, um, even at the time of, of, of Jesus. It was the first city to erect a temple to the goddess of Roma in AD 26 because of their royalty to Rome. They were considered one of the first in Asia uh, because they were so loyal to the Roman um, Empire. It beat out 10 other cities to build a uh, a temple to the emperor Tiberius at the time. And Smyrna was devoted to Rome. And um, because of that, it it was really big into the imperial cult of emperor worship. Um... It was destroyed in 600 BC, but Alexander the Great commissioned that it be rebuilt, and it was rebuilt in 290 BC. And because of that, there was this phrase that Smyrna had been raised to life. It was identified with the phoenix, this symbol of kind of resurrection coming out of the ashes. Um, It was rebuilt closer to the harbor. Its architecture made it one of the most visually pleasing cities of Asia at the time. It had famous temples to Zeus, uh, to the god Sabeel. Um, There was a mall that connected them, which was the envy of the ancient world. They had a group of of buildings called the Crown of Smyrna. Um, This was this Acropolis on Mount Pagos. um, And they had this beautiful roadway called the Street of Gold. You can see some of the uh, imagery that Jesus would use from their modern context that's there. It had a very large Jewish population um, that opposed the Christians. We'll see uh, that come out in this letter as well. Um, we're not exactly sure how this church was founded, but most likely it was founded through Paul's two and a half year ministry in Ephesus. Um, during that time, it said all of Asia had heard the gospel. Um, and so no doubt church planters are being sent out during Paul's training time there. And Ephesus, and more than likely, Smyrna was established during that time. So then we get this authoritative introduction of Jesus. And Jesus introduced himself as the first and the last who died and came to life again. And the church in Smyrna needed to know all these truths about Jesus. They needed to be reminded of who the Christ was. It's interesting, in each of these letters, the relevant aspects Uh, of the description of Jesus that we see in chapter one, of which we're going to come back to at the very end. Each of those are pulled out. The relevant parts for each church, he reminds them of when he addresses them. The first and the last. Jesus is eternal. This is the title for Christ throughout the book of Revelation. We see this in the first opening chapters and the very end. It's connected to his title of Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's meant to convey that Christ is sovereign over all of history. He was there. He is in control of the past. He is in control of the future. And all things exist for him. Jesus is of first importance. He is the first in glory. He is preeminent. He is the first. He can't be preempted. He has always existed. Now, when we think about this too much, your brain will start to short circuit a bit. My kids ask me these kind of questions, and I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) None of us do. He's eternal. He's he's always existed. He he always has been. 
He is the first. He is the eternal one. And he guarantees the victory of his suffering saints. Jesus is present with us now, but Jesus is also present in the future. I don't understand that either. He is watching over his church. He knows how this ends. He's bigger than our ability to understand. And he's also the last. Nothing will endure longer than Jesus. He is all-encompassing. This idea of him being the first and the last is his claim on divinity, that he is God, not Caesar. And he reminds them that he died and came to life. Past tense, these things have happened in history. You can hear the echoes of the first chapter of 18 in his statement. Like like the city of Smyrna, the city of the resurrection, Jesus says, no, I rose again. And while opposition may take one's present life, Jesus is guaranteeing our future life. We need to have a robust understanding of suffering, a robust theology of suffering. And that theology of suffering needs to be centered on Christ if we are to suffer well. It's why we sing the kind of songs that we sung this morning, to remind ourselves what we actually believe, to remind ourselves of who we are here to gather to worship. Because it's in those moments of suffering, it's in those moments when life hangs in the balance that we need to understand the the foundational truths of who Jesus is. When you think about the end of your life, I don't know if you do that very often. It's a good thing to do. If you remember when we went through our series in Ecclesiastes, we were reminded that going to a funeral is better for you than going to a party because it reminds you of your mortality. When you think about the end of your life, it's important that we remember that Jesus has conquered death. It takes the sting out of death because Jesus is bigger than death. And this is what he's reminding them. I am the first and the last. I'm the one who died and rose again. I've conquered death. It's going to be an important truth for them to remember as they may have to face their own. And then we come to the all-knowing evaluation, what Jesus evaluates them um, as a church in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. This is this church, Smyrna, and the church in Philadelphia are the only two churches that Jesus doesn't have any correction for. He doesn't criticize them in any way. And what's interesting is that the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia were probably the two smallest of these churches. They were the least powerful as far as the Christians in those cities. They were the least significant in terms of numbers and influence. That's important for us to remember. The church that Jesus approves of is not always the church that people are drawn to. What we would always, we just assume that because something is big, it's successful. We see that's not always true. Here's a church that's small and would be lacking influence, probably pretty insignificant in our by our estimation of what makes a church successful. And yet Jesus calls this church faithful. And that's important to remember. It's more important for us to be faithful than to be famous. This doesn't mean that only small churches are faithful and the big churches are not. You can have an unfaithful small church and you can have a really faithful big church. The question is, is your church faithful to Jesus and his word? And notice what he says to them. He says, I know. These are two of the most comforting words that I find that Jesus tells these churches. He knows. This is a compassionate, intimate knowledge, especially when he's talking about their suffering, their present situation. This isn't knowledge uh, that, that is just intellectual. This is, I know what you're going through experientially. I know. I had to suffer. I was put to death. I know what you're going through. And he knows three particular things that we'll look at. Tribulation, poverty, and slander. When you experience opposition because of Jesus, because of your faith, because you're trying to do the right thing, 
often we are inclined to ask, aren't we? God, where are you? We assume that if we do the right thing, Jesus will intervene, that Jesus will somehow come to our rescue in that moment. But Jesus reassures them, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you're getting ready to go through, and I'm here. It doesn't mean that we might not have to go through suffering. But we are guaranteed is that Jesus is with us in the midst of our suffering. And he knows three things. One, the tribulation that they're going through. Um, As we mentioned briefly last week, um, every trade um, during this ancient time um, had these guilds, or you could think of them as like a labor union um, in modern day kind of terms. And each of these trade guilds had this kind of patron deity that they would worship. Um, And they would do that so that their business, their trade would would prosper. Um, This still happens today um, in in parts of the world. Um, I've been in Asia where this happens uh, uh, in this this kind of way. So fishermen have this deity that they will worship, that they'll give alms to, so that as they go to sea, they'll be kept safe and they'll be able to um, catch fish and things like that. This is what's happening here. But the Christians then weren't going to be a part of that. They weren't going to worship and honor a false god. Um, Particularly in Smyrna, they were also to worship the emperor. Again, something that they couldn't consent to doing. And then you have the only other religion that was tolerated by the Romans was the Jewish faith. At times, Christians were considered to be Jewish, a part of a a Jewish sect, and therefore they were safe um, because Rome tolerated the Jews. They had been around a long time, obviously, Um, And most of the Jews, at least the establishment kind of Jews, would keep the peace, right? It's part of the reason why Jesus is crucified. And so Rome gives them um, exceptions. They get exemptions from emperor worship within that. But then as Christians begin to grow in popularity, as their numbers begin to grow, and the Jews who rejected Jesus are jealous of their popularity, right? We see this in Acts played out. Jealous Jewish, uh, the jealous Jews led to the persecution of Christians in Acts chapter 5, 17. And most of the persecution against the churches in Acts actually came from the Jews. And so here we have the Jews telling the Romans, these guys aren't Jews. They're a new religion. They're not part of us. And because of that, then the authorities would punish them or they, would, they wouldn't give them the same exemptions that they gave the Jews. This explains verse 9 uh, where Jesus says, the Jews who are not Jews but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus says they're not actually Jews because they've, they've rejected the Messiah. The Christians were the real Jews. They were the ones who had recognized the Messiah. We see this in Romans 2 and John 8. Romans 2 says this, for no, this is Paul writing, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter or by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul says that's who the real Jews are. That's who the real people of God whom he has chosen are. Not just because you're circumcised, not just because you obey the law, not just because you do all the outwardly Jewish stuff. And this is pretty strong language, isn't it? A synagogue of Satan. You know when Jesus calls you Satan, that's a bad day, right? Peter had one of those days. Why does he call him a synagogue of Satan? Who is Satan? Satan is described as the accuser of Christians. And this is exactly what the Jews are doing. They are in league with the devil. They are a synagogue of Satan. They are accusing the Christians. Jesus wants them to know that you are there, that he is there, that he sees them. One of the most discouraging effects of suffering is thinking that you're alone in your suffering, isn't it? That you're the only one suffering in that. And Jesus reassures them that I know I know who's opposing you. There's something powerful about the presence of Jesus in our times of suffering. 
Um, I've, I've said before, during my um, cancer treatment and recovery, um, it wasn't having the answers of, of whether I would be healed or not um, that were most comforting to me. It wasn't scan results that was most comforting to me. Um, it, was, it was those nights uh, in bed, awake, and feeling like Jesus was really, really there, present. That he was just there in the midst. And Jesus says, I know the tribulation that you're going through. Second thing he knows is their poverty. So these are destitute Christians in a very prosperous city. Um, Christians were opposed because they were perceived as a new religion, right? And this new religion wouldn't appease the gods. So the gods aren't going to bless the city. They also aren't making Caesar very happy. So they're not going to raise Smyrna into new heights in the empire. the empire. The values of their Christian faith were direct odds with the values of the Roman Empire. And they were being opposed. And because of that opposition, they had lost jobs. They had lost possessions over their faith. You can't be a part of a trade guild if the, if the main way that you're a part of that is through worshiping these false deities. They had rejected that. This is, we mentioned the Nicolaitans last week. One of the main teachings of the Nicolaitans was it's okay to still engage in these things and still call yourself a Christian. You can kind of bifurcate your life into, into two different things. Some people probably refuse to do business with them. That's part of why Paul was almost killed in Ephesus with the riots, remember? It was the silversmiths who were losing income because people had stopped buying their, their trinkets to false gods and were worshiping Christ. It had affected the, the economy of the city so much. And so this is backlash that's here. Um, no doubt maybe even had their homes pillaged. We see this in Hebrews 10. And yet in the midst of their poverty, Jesus says, you are actually rich. If you suffer for the gospel, you're, wit- you're rich. It's not a curse from God. It's a blessing of God. If you will see the contrast in Laodicea, they are materially rich, and yet Jesus calls them poor. To know the love of God, to have intimacy with Jesus, is to be rich. To have the indwelling spirit within us is to be rich. To have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you is to be rich. Jesus says, Those are the people who will inherit the earth. Um, it's like getting on the Titanic. Um, if you've seen the movie or been to the museum, all the rich people with all their opulence bringing all of their big trunks full of their best clothes and their furs and all of their symbols of, of status onto the boat. Imagine you're just the poor pauper who doesn't have anything. The only thing you've brought on to the boat is a rubber life raft. Who's the richest person on that boat when that boat starts to sink? It's not your pearls and fur coat that's going to save you. It's, it's the person who has the means to save their life. We want to look at those who are striving after worldly wealth but don't have Jesus. Those people are put in front of us all the time through the media, through Hollywood, through social media, as if that is the real life. And Jesus says, no, true riches, real riches aren't necessarily postable on Instagram. They're not going to get you into A-list Hollywood. But real riches are found in knowing Christ Jesus. Nothing wrong with material wealth, by the way. There's wealthy people that Jesus encounters. Lydia, wealthy woman, but uses her wealth for the kingdom of God. If all you have is Jesus, you have everything. And if you remember from Ecclesiastes, if you have it all but don't have Jesus, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's the chasing after the wind. Jesus isn't a means to an end. He is the end. He is the first and the last. He's not... The means of fulfilling your dream. He is the dream. 
We don't pursue Jesus to get something else. We pursue him because he and his steadfast love is better than life, as the psalmist says. But I fail to believe that moment by moment, day by day, right? And so my heart chases after other things. My affections go after other things that I think are going to be better, that I think are going to satisfy. And in the end, they don't. Jesus is reminding them, though you are materially poor, though you are being persecuted, you are rich. You have everything that you ultimately need. Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's, that's our job as, as believers, right? That's ministry. We might not have much in the world's eyes, but we're making people truly rich. Mark 10, um, Jesus says this in verses 29 to 30. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says you get it all back in spite of your afflictions, in spite of being opposed. God gives you all your spiritual riches to to our wildest dreams now and in the age to come. The third thing that Jesus knows they're enduring is slander. Again, these ethnic Jews And I say ethnic Jews because that's what they were. They were ethnic Jews. They weren't spiritually uh, God's chosen people. They weren't spiritual Jews. And they were opposing them. They're spreading rumors about them. Um, Again, as long as they were under the umbrella of Judaism, they were exempt from from this imperial cult worship. And the Jews essentially kicked them out from underneath their umbrella. They removed that kind of exemption and protection of them. In Smyrna, the Jews instigated the legal action in the Roman courts against the Christians. And so Jesus refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. They were the ones with the adversary in opposing the church. Now, this isn't some kind of verse to justify anti-Semitism. Let me just be very clear on that, right? This isn't, nowhere are we justified in, in hating anybody because of their ethnicity. John doesn't say that all Jews are of Satan, it's these particular Jews who, Jesus says, aren't actually Jews by faith that are the ones who are doing the work of Satan. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. He's writing this message to John, the apostle, who was a Jew, writing to Christians, some of whom probably would have come from Jewish backgrounds. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And this is what these people are doing. They're under the, the, the influence that's there. But it's important for us. Notice how Satan works. It's through the agency of people. Jesus says that Satan is getting ready to throw them into prison. He doesn't say it's the Jews. He doesn't say it's the Roman state. But it's Satan who's getting ready to throw them into prison. And that's how it works. Jesus, uh, Satan works through the agency of people. Satan isn't going to show up to your job and fire you in person. Satan isn't going to actually show up and and physically abuse you. He works through the agency of humanity. And and that's why we're reminded that our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual. The attack usually comes through human beings under the influence of the accuser. But ultimately, our battle is with him. Around the world today, Christians still deal with these type of persecution. They still deal with tribulation and poverty because of their faith, slander, and even in prison, as we see in verse 10. It's hard being a Christian in a lot of countries. It might be easy for us to forget this sometimes. Juan Sanchez has this pretty stinging quote. He says, subconsciously, the idea of comfort and security as a right is so ingrained in our Western psyche that deep down, most of us expect to serve the Lord at no personal cost at all. That's probably true. We've been really blessed to live in the time and place that we live in. We get, for the most part, a lot of religious freedom. No one was worried today when we showed up here that someone might come in through the door and shut us down. I've never had that worry here. 
the armed policemen at the door in Turkey remind you of that, that that could be a real, a real viability for those guys. But if our faith doesn't lead to some measure of suffering, if we don't get any pushback, none of us have the threat of prison yet. None of us have the threat of probably physical violence. But what does persecution look like for you? It might be, man, I know my boss doesn't really look favorably on this kind of stuff. Maybe I should just kind of keep things under wraps, not let on that I'm a, I'm a Christian, kind of keep that secret. Otherwise, I might not get that promotion. I might not. Or if you work in a government job of some kind, that's probably certainly the case. And I'm not saying we have to, you know, abuse uh, and, and um, be persecutors ourselves. But are we open and we honest about our faith? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German pastor during the Nazi um, regime, was tried and hung uh, in a German concentration camp in 1945. And this is what he wrote. He said, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckoned suffering among the, was among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ and is therefore not surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And today in China, Nepal, various parts of Africa, the Middle East, Asia, elsewhere, Christians are facing great opposition, but they aren't in it alone. Jesus knows the suffering of his people. And so he gives us the appropriate exhortation then in verse 10. He gives us this imperative of don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Not if you suffer, but what you are about to suffer. He knows what they're getting ready to go through. And he tells them not to be afraid. This is a a major theme of the Bible, not fearing and suffering. Um, We see it in the Old Testament, in Psalms, in Matthew, in 1 Peter, all throughout the, the scripture. Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I trust in you. Psalm 23, we all know this one, right? It's quoted at almost every funeral we go to. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Hebrews 11, by faith he left, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Imagine leading the exodus with Pharaoh. And it says, he wasn't afraid of Pharaoh. Why? Because he endured seeing him who is invisible. Seeing God. Fixing his eyes on Jesus. And this is what we do. In the midst of tribulation, the church is to be a fearless witness. It is not being afraid of the persecution that is a witness itself. Not giving in to threat that is a witness itself. And so we remember this when we bear witness locally. We remember this as we help plant churches around the world. Remember this, maybe even some of you take up that calling. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise that he makes to us. He's making that to this church here so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's what made Paul such an incredible witness. We're going to beat you up. That's okay. Just just a body. I get a new one. We're going to throw you in prison. That's okay. I'll witness to all your guards, get them all saved, write letters to the churches while I'm in there. Fine, we'll kill you. That's okay. To die is gain. I get to be physically with Jesus at that point. Like There's no threat that you could threaten a Christian with if we really understand and take our faith seriously. To know that he is the beginning and the end. To know that he is present with us in our suffering. What does he say about who our enemy is? Satan. Satan is about to throw you in prison. He is the one who's behind us. He is the great slanderer. He is the one who hates us. And the type of suffering is prison. There have been many Christians throughout history that have seen the inside of a prison. Beginning with the apostles. John Bunyan, 
um, stayed in prison for 12 years for his conscience sake. He could have gotten out if he had agreed not to preach the gospel. He had four small children and a wife. One of his kids was blind. Pretty easy to just kind of justify, fine, I'll stop preaching the gospel. I'll go out and take care of my family. He couldn't do it. Now, for us, we think of prison as a place that you go after judgment has been passed. You get a fair trial. If you're guilty, you go to prison. And that's where you go after being condemned. But in this context, in this time, prison isn't that. Prison is a place of coercion. Before you're found guilty of anything or detention for some impending trial or an impending execution, it might even involve torture or other shameful practices. And this is what Jesus is telling them. You're going to be put in prison. You might be tortured. You might even be condemned to die. But he has a sovereign purpose over all of these things. Why is that? It's that your, verse 10, is that you may be tested. We're told in Luke uh, 22 that Satan's design is to sift Christians like wheat. But God has his purposes in allowing us to go through the sifting. It's Satan who wants to destroy. It is God who tests us and refines us through these fires. We don't always know the details of God's purpose. We don't always know the details of his sovereignty. But we do know the purpose of those things. The purpose of those things is to make us more like Jesus. And so when you go through suffering, when you're opposed, we don't always know the details. We don't always know how long it's going to be. But we do know the purpose. The purpose that God allows us to do these, to go through difficulties of suffering is to make us more like Jesus. The testing here is involved is whether or not they will renounce the Christ. Which kind of begs the question, are we okay with God testing us? Are we okay with that? Are we okay to have our, our faith tested? Because it's what we're promised from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Read through the, the entire scripture. It's constantly people being tested of their faith. Is their faith genuine? Genesis 22.1, all the patriarchs are tested. All the people of God are tested. Abraham's tested. Daniel's tested. Joseph's tested. All the prophets are tested. Jesus himself is tested in the wilderness. He's tested in the garden. All the apostles are tested. It's really easy to say, oh, I have faith in Jesus, when it doesn't cost us anything, when it's never tested one of the great things about having your, tested, your faith tested is that you know it's real. How do you know your faith is even real if it's not tested? Having our faith tested is actually a blessing to us, which is why James writes in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What he's describing there is a maturity of faith. How, how does your faith mature? How does the roots of your faith go deeper down into the roots? The roots go deeper down into the soil. It's through testing. It's through perseverance. It's through endurance through hard times. And notice Jesus knows the extent of their suffering. He says, for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now, I, I think like most time periods mentioned in Revelation, this isn't a literal 10 days. It's like, oh, sweet, week and a half and we're done with this. This is a, a period that he's letting them know is limited in time. This isn't just endless suffering. It's going to be for a limited time. God will make sure it's not endless. It'll be terrible. You'll have to endure it. But again, we see God is sovereign over it. It's not like, well, for as long as Satan wants to. No, it's going to be for a specific time that I allow. For this period of time. And so we put all this together. As Christians, you're going to suffer. Jesus is sovereign over its duration. He's sovereignly working his purposes through it. And because of that, you don't have to be afraid. 
Jesus knows the situation, and he's present with you through it. It's good news. But it's good news that I forget, that we forget often. It's important that we, we construct, that we believe, that we understand, that we uh, deeply hold this theology of robust suffering before we have to suffer. <laughs> to know that now, before your time comes, is so important. You hold on to in the dark what you learn in the light. So learn this now. Let us learn this now, church. Our church is, is young, both in as long as it's been around and by the makeup of our church, which means we haven't gone through a bunch of suffering. I did my first funeral a couple weeks ago, and it wasn't even anyone in this church. It was a family member. We haven't even had a, a funeral yet. How many baby dedications have we had? How many weddings have we had? How many baptisms have we got to celebrate? Loads. No funerals yet. We've had some trying times. Some of us have gone through health scares. Right, Karina? Good to see you. It's important that we understand these things now. And this is the word to them. This is the message of the entire book of Revelation. He says, be faithful even unto death, in verse 10. Be faithful unto physical death. It's important for us to think about. Um, I didn't have to think about how I would die. (laughs) Uh, uh, Until this last year, I remember when I was... um, and I, I went through cancer, um, for those of you that are visiting for the first time. Um, I remember being in the hospital, and uh, there was a guy who was only a few years older than me. His name's Tony, and literally sitting watching him die. Um, I had to have help getting in and out of the bath and shower. Uh, he's essentially a skeleton with skin on at this point. He showed me pictures of what he was like before. He was a soldier really good shape, strong. I didn't know him then. And, uh, and for a couple of weeks, just sat and watched him wither away. Uh, Sue so went to his funeral. Um, I was still in the hospital. I couldn't go. Um, but you can pray for Tony's wife, for his widowed wife. So Sue's still in touch with her. Just got a text from her this week and has been sharing the gospel with her. But you have, to, you have to think about, <laughs> there's no guarantees for me at that time. And so you think about, how, how, how will I die? Will I be faithful to the end? Will I trust the Lord with my life? With the lives of my family that I leave behind? These questions are important for us to think through, um, not just as humans, but especially as Christians. And it's important for us to think through those things, as hard as it is when life is going well. There is something about having to face your own mortality um, that puts a sharp point on those. And certainly I've asked myself that in that moment in a much different way. And I thank God that he spared my life. Can we be faithful unto physical death? And for a lot of us, that just means small acts of obedience for a long life until a natural death. Praise God for that. For other people on the planet, and maybe for us someday, who knows, it might mean dying for your faith. It's been humbling to partner with churches uh, in a place like Turkey, their willingness to suffer. Their willingness of death is, is, uh, is real. And when we were there at the conference, uh, one of the pastors exhorted them and stood up and he said this. He said, I know some of you pastors in Turkey have been threatened with death, which is true. 
And this is what he said to them. Be faithful until the point of death. And then he said this. He says, if you are the wife of those pastors, you want them to be faithful until the point of death. If you are a church member, you should want this for your pastor too. It's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's true. Wherever the church has been persecuted heavily, it continues to grow. And there might come a time um, for us Maybe it's our kids or our grandkids should the Lord delay his return. In the West, that might mean the death of our, our reputation. You could call a bicket. You could call uh, somebody who hates other people. It might be the death of a relationship. People lose friends and family because of their faith all the time. It might be the death of finances or your health. And Jesus wants them to know he knows. But he also wants them to remember there's always resurrection on the other side. You get it all back. Jesus is worth dying for, which is why we end with the attention-grabbing benediction. He gives them this promise of a crown of life in verse 10. This is the way he states it positively. This is this gift. Um, The metaphor from the church in Ephesus has changed from a tree of life, this glorious paradise, to now a victor's crown who wins the race. Smyrna was known for its athletic games. So this is this metaphor. You would get a crown um, if you won the race, a wreath. And he reminds them, they may take your life, but I will give you the crown of life. This is the reward for those who finish, not just who start the race. Paul likens the Christian life to a race, a long, hard race that requires training and perseverance. But at the end, Jesus, our champion, rewards us with a crown of life. What he stated positively, I will give you the crown of life, is now stated negatively. You will not be hurt by the second death. And again, this is for the one who overcomes, the one who is faithful to the end. He says, you're not hurt at all by the second death. Jesus says, do not fear, I have defeated death. And because of that, then, those who are in me won't be hurt by it. We get other references to the second death in chapter 20, in chapter 21, this idea of the lake of fire, that in the end, death and hell are thrown into this eternal death. And Jesus says, those who are faithful to the end don't have to fear that. Do you remember in our Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, uh, we, we looked at this reference where Jesus says, don't fear the ones who can kill the body. Don't fear the physical death. Fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. It's the second death that is what we should fear. The eternal death. And Jesus says, those who are faithful to me to the end don't have to fear this. You might have to go through a physical death. I mean, we all will at at some level. Even if you live a life with very little suffering. You're going to die someday. There's a a Twitter account, and it's basically your daily death reminder. And every day it tweets out, remember, someday you're going to die. (laughs) I'm like, wow, that's a really positive Twitter account to follow. I only know it exists because I have a friend of mine who's a little more on the uh, serious side, and he just retweets it all the time. (laughs) And I'm like, bro, I have enough reminders right now. I don't need your Twitter account telling me that I'm going to die someday. Jesus says, that's not the death that you have to fear. The death that you have to fear is the second death. That's the one that really matters. That's the one that lasts. That's the one that separates you from Jesus eternally. And Jesus reminds these guys, though you're going through suffering, though you might even face a first death, you don't have to fear it because you won't have to go through the second death. The pastor of this church, Smyrna, was um, one of the most famous martyrs. This is a pastor called Polycarp, kind of a weird name. But he was a disciple of the Apostle John. And this is the description of his martyrdom. Probably in the year 156, um, Polycarp, the, the pastor there, who had fled from the city at the pleading of his congregation, was tracked down to his hiding place, a farm outside the city, 
but he made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission for a time to pray, for which he did for two hours. Then as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can it do, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? But Polycarp refused. On arrival, he's, rushly, he's roughly pushed out of the carriage, brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater. So now there's a, an entire crowd in this arena who addresses him. Respect your years. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, swear and I will release you. Revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, for 86 years, so he's an old man at this time, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the proconsul persisted, swear by, senior, uh, by Caesar, I have wild beasts and if you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. And Polycarp says, bring your beasts. And, the, and, and uh, he says, since you make light of the beast, I will have you destroyed by fire unless you change your attitude. And angry Jews and Gentiles gather this wood quickly for this pyre. Polycarp is stood by the stake. And they're getting ready to nail him to the stake, nail him to the wood. And he says, please, don't fasten me to it. He says, the one who's given me grace this far will give me grace to endure the flames. And then he prays, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour for sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. And the fire is lit. And he's burned. The wind starts to blow the flame away from him. And so a soldier puts an end to his misery with a sword. This is the pastor of this church. This faithful church that is enduring tribulation and poverty and slander and martyrdom. Faithful to death. And although Polycarp receives a terrible first death, he conquers the second through Christ. He receives the crown of life. Because he followed Jesus. And it's the path of suffering, to be sure. But it's also the path of resurrection and glory. We all will go through the first death. The question is, what happens after that? And Jesus says, those who are his have no reason to fear. All the promises of Revelation 21 to 22 come true. All the tears are wiped away. All things are made new. Future glory is consummated. To live is Christ and to die is gain because you gain everything. Here's the last main point I want us to consider as we end. In order to be faithful unto death, the knowledge and treasuring of Jesus must be bigger to us than the reality of death itself. Jesus has to matter more to you than the reality of death itself. Jesus is the first and the last. He's the conqueror over death. He's the giver of the crown of life to those who remain faithful. Jesus has to be bigger to us than death itself, which is why we gather week after week. It's why we remind ourselves of these truths. It's why we come to the table to remember his death, to proclaim his death. Why would a church gather week after week to proclaim the death of someone? Because it's through that death that we receive life. It's through that death that we escape the second death, the one that really matters. It's through that death that we say of our own, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Because you can kill us. There's no sting in that. There's no eternal sting. There's nothing that, that takes away the victory over death in that because of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, would you, through your spirit and through your word, drive these truths deep into our heart? Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. And help our unbelief in those times when it is the hardest, when we are ridiculed, when we are criticized, when we have loss potentially in front of us. May you be better than anything that we would want to hold on to. May we not fear any kind of loss at all, whether that's material or status or power.
or even our life because you are better than all of those things. And what we receive through you is eternally better than any of those things. Father, the new creation won't just be great because we have survived. It won't just be great because sin is there. Sin isn't there. The death is gone. It is ultimately great because you are there, that you are present. And Father, we thank you for this reminder that you see us, that you know us, that you are even present now with us. And so as we come to receive bread and wine, these means of grace once again to us, would you stir our affections? Would you plant those roots of our faith deep down so that they would be able to endure, that we might be able to persevere? On a day like today where the sun is out, where it's not as cold and gray, where we're tempted to think that life is easy, Father, we want to do two things. One, thank you for when life is easy and thank you for uh, those sunny days. We thank you that life is full of pleasure and enjoyment that you give us. But will you also remind us that not every day is like that and certainly there will day, a day will come uh, where the darkness will envelop us. And in that moment, may we believe, may we trust May you give us the grace to say that Jesus is better. That we will not be afraid. Encourage us by your spirit even now. We ask in your name.